Welcome to the Insight Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Rob Lawson. Rob is Associate Professor in Sociolinguistics at Birmingham City University, and he's the author of the book Language and Mediated Masculinities. I talked to Rob about the manosphere, what it is and why it appeals to boys and men, how media works to slowly pull people to more extreme views, why investment needs to be made in our communities and the importance of role models for boys and young men, how the sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine promotes positive masculinity, and much more. Enjoy the episode. Let's talk about your work. Um, so you've mentioned you're an associate professor of sociolinguistics. And I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I want to know more about what that involves, but also linked to, um, we're going to talk about the manosphere, aren't we? So I'd, I'd love to mm-hmm. hear maybe like a, a, a brief explanation of what your job involves. And then let's, let's talk about what is the manosphere? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, like I said, I'm an associate professor in sociolinguistics, and sociolinguistics is essentially looking at the relationship between language and society, and language in society. So, it's about how people use language, what that language just might tell us about things like their age, their ethnicity, their social class, their region in particular. So, the UK has got all of these regional uh, dialects and accents, whether that's Mancunian, Liverpudlian, Glaswegian, Black Country English, Birmingham English, uh, and so on. So, really rich sort of regional variation that you get across the UK. Um, and what I'm interested in is is what that language tells us about people, and I'm particularly interested in what language tells us about men and what language tells us about contemporary masculinities and gender relations mm. um, in contemporary society. So one of the big areas that I, I've looked at in my recent book is the, is the manosphere, which has sort of become more... Um, of a, a thing talked about in the in the media by journalists, by politicians, by policymakers, by teachers um, in particular as well. And the manosphere, kind of ostensibly, it's a, a space that's marketed as being uh, for men. It's a collection of uh, websites, a forum. Uh, uh, forum sites, uh, Twitter accounts, uh, YouTube uh, celebrities and, and social media influencers that talk about a variety of issues related to men and masculinity. So that might be things like um, fitness or setting up your own business or entrepreneurship or dating, uh, relationships, marriage, divorce, um, child custody, you know, all uh, men's mental health, uh, physical health, and so on. So, so a variety of topics that are about um, men and sort of directed at men. And so that's sort of one part of it. But a lot of my own research and, and other people's researches has found that it's also a place where quite a kind of virulent strain of anti-women and anti-feminist uh, sentiment abounds. And so it's places where we see sort of expressions of of outright hostility against women, um, outright hostility against um, feminism Mm. as well, and and really vitriolic language round about women, about uh, feminism in particular. And the manosphere is sort of not just one coherent whole. We usually talk about the manosphere being made up of different sort of sections or different communities uh, within the manosphere. So that could be everybody, anybody from, you know, red pill um, organisations and red pill sort of spaces through to men's rights activists or incel and voluntary um, celibate spaces as well. So it, it kind of captures quite a lot of different ideas about men, about masculinity, um, uh, uh, even about things like dating and relationships and, and so on. So, so yes, I'm interested in how language is, is used 
in manosphere spaces more broadly i'm interested in how language is used in different media spaces whether that's kind of an online spaces mm. um or whether that's offline and things like you know newspapers or tv shows or, or movies so i'm interested in how can we analyze those kinds of media outputs and try and get to a better understanding about contemporary masculinity and about how men talk about other men how men use language um and ideally kind of try and use those insights to make the world a better place so I'm, I'm really interested in how we can use what we know about language on the one hand to try and make a difference um outside of academia and and the real world in inverted commas mm, fascinating what's the red pill <laughs> the what's the red pill, the red so, pill yeah. um so the red pill have you seen the matrix yes yeah yeah yeah, okay, so in The Matrix, you've got this imagery of, of the main character, Neo. He gets offered a choice of the blue pill or the red pill. And the blue pill, he you know, he wakes up in his bed and he's none the wiser about the options that his mentor, Morpheus, is, is offering him. He takes the red pill, on the other hand, the sort of artifice of the world is, is revealed and he takes the red pill and he sees the world for, for what it really is. It's this computer uh, AI control computer simulation that keeps humanity enslaved. And that imagery and that symbolism is being taken over in certain sections of the manosphere as a way of highlighting how the world is controlled, usually by feminists and feminism and the mass media. But if you take the real, uh, if you take the red pill, you see the real world for for what it is. That you can strip back the artifice, you strip back the illusion mm-hmm. that you know the world is is actually completely different from how most people um, see it. So it becomes a, a kind of form of uh, almost like self emancipation. Um, you sort of get the, the the scale stripped from your eyes, and you see the world for for what it really is. So you see that you know, for example, the the dating pool um, is sort of against men that relationships favor women and instead of men um the mass media is pushing a particular anti-men uh or anti-male agenda so these kinds of ideologies are a part of the kind of circulating discourses of the of the manosphere Mm -hmm. that men are being sort of downtrodden that men are being um, pushed to the side that men are not being uh, given the same kinds of opportunities as as women um, for example, and so that red pill uh, symbolism becomes really powerful, and you know there's been lots and lots and lots written about it, both by myself and, and other academics in linguistics and criminology and psychology and social studies um, and so on to try and understand why the red pill so deductive. How does it feed into sort of broader ideas about conspiracy theories and so on? And so I think why it's seductive is because it gives people a, a sense of like. A solution or an explanation for why the world is the way that it is in quite a nice sort of packaged up um, way. Yeah. And instead of sort of critiquing or interrogating the actual reality, this sort of red pill gets used as a, yeah, placebo in some ways, I suppose, is, a, yeah, just a really nice, neat explanation for why the world is the way that it is. And, and because then you can move why the world is the way that it is on other people you absolve yourself of yes. sort of any personal responsibility right the world's like this because not because of me you know and i can't do anything about it the world is the way that it is and so it's, it's set up against me so so yeah there's there's a sort of real sort of psychological component i think to why the red pill becomes um why the red pill is so widespread particularly in the in the manosphere yeah it's a complex topic and Kind of thinking about the, the the manosphere, the red pill. I don't know what you think, but it's like that. There, there are there are elements of things that are being shared that there's a reason that it appeals, isn't it? If if there are forums mm. saying, well, giving advice as you said about fitness or entrepreneurship, or if there's advice saying, like, come on, come on, men, like, um, you, you need to be strong for your family, like, you, you can you can be mm. there and you can support them, like, that's your job and. Other elements like that, where there, where there is so, some truth in it, but then, you, like you say, there's this mm. dark side of it, this anti-women, the, these ideas mm. 
these conspiracy theories, some of, some of them aren't they? And it's just so interesting because there, there is a reason why mm. some of these characters that, that we're seeing the rise of recently, um, you know, the usual names, but Jordan Peterson, for yeah. example, I've, I've read both Jordan Peterson's books and there's a lot of sense mm. in there. There's a lot of good, good advice that I appreciate, but there's also just a lot of nonsense. And especially recently, there's a lot of nonsense being shared. I, I, I don't know what you think, whether yeah. you agree or completely disagree with that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think this good advice acts as a Trojan as a Trojan's horse almost for the um, uh, sort of the the worst aspects of you know what someone like Peterson might might or you know Tate or whatever. Um, so I think that yeah, the the bad elements are kind of hidden in the in the good advice, um, and what you see then is audiences getting pulled in by the seductiveness of mm. the of the good advice if you take someone like like take the seductiveness of the image of masculinity that he presents one sort of rooted in conspicuous consumption and physicality and control and strength and power but then also underpinning all of that is you know as i say a kind of really anti-feminist anti-women kind of um perspective often rooted in you know physical violence, sexual violence uh, uh, against women. Um, so I think that becomes really dangerous, right? Because I think men, uh, audiences, you know, especially young men who might engage with this content, see the the good messages, you know, stoicism, emotional control, um, self-discipline, you know, those are all, uh, as you say, I think those are all good qualities to, to have to some extent. And so, so audiences latch on to those kinds of ideas. But then what comes alongside that is the is the more dangerous, more problematic elements of their of their messaging that is kind of hidden and, and becomes really insidious. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it, it, it takes time to build these kinds of um anti-women or anti-feminist positions up. You don't watch just one, you know, YouTube video of, of an Andrew Tate um interview. You don't just read one blog post on a on a you know a red pill forum you don't just follow you know one person on on twitter that's kind of promoting these ideas it's it's a gradual process where certain positions that you might have thought mm, okay that's a bit that's a bit dodgy those become normalized yeah. and you're sort of shunted along to more extreme positions over over time and a lot of the research that's looked at young men's journeys through radicalization and extremism make that point that that it is a journey right you don't just sort of wake up one morning and go i'm anti-feminist you know i'm anti-women i i hate women i'm a misogynist um you you know it's a it's a long period of of time to sort of work through those um processes but i think what's what's worrying it for from me in a media perspective is that you see some of these discourses become normalized in, in mainstream media right so for a long time what was happening was that these kinds of platforms were were niche they were online they hadn't quite penetrated mainstream markets but if you look at for example the furore roundabout what um lawrence fox said on gb news a couple of days ago you know, where he was using the manosphere language of things like simp and cuck and incel and so on, that's kind of mainstreaming that language and it's and it's highlighting actually how ubiquitous it's become in mainstream spaces. And that's worrying, you know, in terms of well, what new audiences does does that open up? What kind, you know, and you look at, you know, someone like Andrew Tate who uh, ended up on, you know, Piers Morgan. Um, for example, you know, again, another massive new audience of, of potential people who didn't know about who he was before or what he stands for. All of a sudden, he's got this brand new audience and then he's reinstated on Twitter, which again opens up another audience for him. And so this kind of mainstreaming of different forms of digital hate, um, of network misogyny, I think that's that's really concerning because we see, you know, really devastating consequences of, of this in terms of, you know, violence against women mm-hmm. and girls. And I think that the language that circulates in the manosphere, that gives us, I think, quite a good insight into attitudes and ideologies and, and sort of perspectives that manosphere space, you know, people who follow manosphere spaces sort of what they believe in. Um, and, and yeah, that, and then you start to see these kinds of things getting circulating in, you know, schools, um, and classrooms and assemblies and dinner halls and playgrounds. Um, 
and then the question is, you know, well, what do you, what do you do about this? And that's that's a that's a massive question that probably takes us in a totally different um, direction. But that's that's why I'm interested in not just men and masculinities, and there's a whole sort of academic discipline about that, and not just in the linguistic side of it, which again is another big um, discipline in its own right. But actually, how can you use the two of them together to make better understanding about each component, right? So how does the language side of it help us understand men and masculinity, but also how does, you know, a better understanding of men and masculinities improve what we know about how language works and the power that language has in different kinds of media spaces. So that's that's kind of why yeah. I'm really interested in, in what I do. Yeah, that's great. And, and I want to kind of talk more about that um, shortly. But just going back to what you said about that kind of the, the way that people get get drawn in, and I've I've seen you speak about, about about that before, kind of the YouTube algorithm that you'd watch one video, like you said, that can be fairly kind of like fairly simple, you know, seem seemingly harmful. It's just some advice about you know get up early and then you've got some time to read and exercise, and that's good. You're taking control. But then, like you said, yeah. gradually. It, you know these more extreme views come, and I guess that's not just um, the manosphere. That that is other areas of extremism, mm. isn't it? So, uh, all different varieties. And I think I saw that in your in an interview that you did with with Vice. And so that's the, the mm. thing I wanted to ask you about because we've talked a little bit about this already. Like why why is it attractive? And you mentioned that the reason why the manosphere and some of these messages can be. Um, attractive to to young men is Michael Kimmel's ideal of aggrieved entitlement. And I, 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 I'm interested in that. What, what is aggrieved entitlement? Aggrieved entitlement. Aggrieved entitlement. Yeah, it's, it's a really useful um, way, I think, of thinking about gender relations and gender dynamics in online spaces mm. in particular. And I think it can help sort of explain underpinning, set, you know, feelings of almost like annoyance about how why the world is or the, the way that it is. So I agree with entitlement if it essentially argues that men have lost uh, the centrality of their position in contemporary society and they're angry about that. Right. And they're angry about that because there is a sense of entitlement that men are important and at the centre of the world. And that loss of, of that status is something to be reclaimed, is something to be fought for. Um, you usually see it in, in sort of discussions of um, equal opportunities or affirmative action, for example, where historically particular sections of, of society might uh, have been underserved or overlooked in favour of usually white Western English-speaking uh, men. And the sort of pendulum, the argument goes, is kind of swung in the opposite direction too far. And so now white men in particular are kind of being left behind educationally, um, socially, and that causes anger, you know. And so the, the idea is to, is to fight for reclaiming that status. So that's what Kimmel's idea of a grave entitlement is, you know, it's effectively a, a way of kind of, Captured in this sense of a, a lost status that men have had in the in the past, when you think back to you know the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, where men were typically and, and traditionally the sort of primary breadwinner. Um, for example, they may have been the the only person in the family who who worked and supported the rest of the of the family, who made all the important decisions, who was the disciplinarian in the family, who ran the house, who controlled things like the financial side of the of the household, who were represented in you know positions of of social power as well. And you still see you know sort of remnants of of that if you look at you know CEOs and CFOs and major you know businesses. Vast majority of them are are men. You look at you know things like political representation in, in the UK and the US. Again, it's weighted more towards men. So there are sort of historical remnants of of male status that we still see play out even even today. But that's been fractured, right? So you know, women work. You know, they, there, there's no expectation that they stay at home and look after children. Women can make their own decisions. They control their own finances. They contribute to civic society, and 
the argument I think in the in the manosphere and that Kimmel explores is that women moving up and becoming more independent has meant the resulting loss of status for for men, and because of that loss of status, men feel sort of pushed to the sidelines. And they're angry and frustrated and annoyed by that. And so it's about sort of reasserting um, a claim to the centrality of that of that status, or sort of reclaiming that status back. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually that happens in, in violent kinds of, uh, not usually, sometimes that can happen in, in violent kinds of uh, ways. The sense of aggrieved entitlement often underpins, um, you know, sort of incel-related violence, um, for example, where... They might feel like they are um, being rejected by society. They've been rejected by potential romantic partners because they don't measure up to particular standards of masculinity. They think they don't measure up to particular standards of masculinity. And so the way that they wreak revenge on that is is through violence and, and sometimes in, in really horrific and devastating um, kinds of ways. So, so yeah, I think aggrieved entitlement can be a really useful way of thinking through gender relations and, and how gender relations shift over time as well, right? So, you know, these are gender relations are dynamic. They, they shift and uh, respond in, uh, you know, in, in different ways over, over the course of history. So we're at a moment, I think, where men feel, you know, very much untethered. Um, from from contemporary society, um, and want to reassert that that position of of importance of status of centrality um, again, um, and that's you know that's I think a bigger a bigger conversation about whether that's a legitimate way of men thinking about their status. Um, I've argued, and and other people have argued that it's it's not a sustainable kind of position to make, given how privileged men are in, in a lot of other kinds of, of ways. Um, but then, you know, you look at some of the discussion that happened again in GB uh, on, on BBC News a couple of days ago about men's mental health mm. and calling for increased in provision for men's mental health. And that discussion was derailed in favour of talking about violence against women and girls. And so what often happens is that... <laughs> gender relations is typically seen as like a zero-sum game so like if if one group is winning then another group needs to be losing and and i think that's a really um, unproductive way of of thinking through these things um and so what ends up happening is not very much happens at all because you know there's no political will i, I suppose to kind of um address them and i think you know the case that i was talking about um, just a minute ago men's mental health is a really important problem but that doesn't mean if we focus on that that we should be ignoring rates of of violence against women and girls which is you know obviously an epidemic in and of itself um so i don't think it needs to be an either or case and and this has been the big debate that's that's um sort of fallen out from the the bbc news segment that i mentioned um it doesn't need to be either or but often it is positioned in you know, in the media and and political um, spheres, as an either or thing, we we you know we've got to focus on one thing, but we've got to ignore everything else to in order for us to address that. I don't think that's a particularly productive way, but I don't know quite what the solution is to, <laughs> to that. Yeah, Richard Reeves talks about it, doesn't it, in, in his book and other things I've mm. seen with him is TED Talk. It's like just because I'm trying to, um, you know bring these topics to the forefront around men's mental health and education for boys and things. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to, you know, rewind the clock or anything, or I'm or suggesting mm. that um, equality isn't a, isn't a good thing. Of course, that's not what, what we're saying. And oh, it's just yeah. so, so tricky, isn't it? Like when people just are yeah. so black and white and it's like, no, no, we've got to focus on this and not this when, you know, we should just be moving forward altogether. And obviously these, kind of these sections of society are trying to go about it in the wrong way and have been fed these messages and because it's mm. appealed to that side of them they've, they've really clung on to them yeah. you know these but these men are kind of they're lost aren't they they're, they're, there are many men out there that are that are lost and without purpose and I, I feel like that that is a real thing that they feel like they haven't got a purpose that they feel like mm. they're not part of a community um that they're alone you know we, we hear about these yeah. these statistics around loneliness that are just pretty pretty shocking and so what yeah. what is 
I mean, you've, you've said you don't know what the solution is. I don't know what the solution is. It's it's just so complex. But but how, how do you yeah. move forward without you know this side of the argument? What what do we do? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that needs to be seen in context of you know more than a decade of austerity, of a lack of investment in local communities. Right. Uh, lack of investment in community spaces and mental health provision being cut to the bone and social services being cut to the bone on youth interventions and services being um, cut right across the, the, the UK. So, yeah, I think one of the impacts of that ultimately is that young people and young men feel underserved by their community you know there's there's no spaces for them to to socialize there's no activities for them to participate and there's no um community leaders sort of giving them mentorship and, and advice and so they look to other kinds of spaces to to get that guidance and you know in in some cases that's you know male social media influencers um for example so i think that in some senses, what needs to happen is a reversal of, of those kinds of cuts. Um, and for communities to see more investment in, in them, for communities to have, you know, sports groups, to have organisations that are, you know, dedicated to, to youth services and, and to give, you know, young people and young men, um, yeah, social spaces that's, that are for them. Uh, and so I think that that would be one, I think, not easy, not straightforward, but it certainly would be one path forward for trying to address the sense of, of what you say, you know, loneliness of, of lack of lack of purpose. And there's a whole bunch of organisations that are trying to um, fill these gaps. Um, but I think a lot more needs to be done. And, and a lot of them are not necessarily targeted at, at young men, but sort of 18 plus. So, right. you know, things like um, men's sheds, for example, where you can go and you um, you can make things and you can, you know, sort of engage in crafting and manufacturing and sort of using your hands, but also have conversations with other men there about sort of what, what it is, whatever it is that you're going through. So those kinds of things typically are kind of targeted at, at older, um, at, you know, 18 plus. But I think there needs to be a lot more investment in, in youth services uh, for, you know, young younger people in, uh, in, in particular. Um, I think as good as social media spaces are, I, you know, I really wonder how far um, the ready access of, of social media is through, you know, laptops, through smartphones, through tablets, how far that's a, that's a problem as well, because it's very easy to disappear into your room and, and yeah. consume that content with sort of no oversight and no um, parental guidance. And, you know, it is a bit of a sort of wild west out there where young people, young men can engage with that content with, with no real oversight from, you know, their mum or their dad or their caregiver or guardian. So I think that's, that's something that, you know, we also probably need to talk about is is the very access of of you know social media spaces um you know walking around with that in your in your pocket listening to the podcasts and, and so on but i also think you know we're too quick to elevate on a pedestal social media influencers um and i you know i said in in other uh, interviews yeah i think we need to really try and recent our community leaders mm. um i think we need to recent our um teachers I think we need to decent our family members as as being good and important and reliable sources of of support, of mentoring, of of guidance, uh, of of kind of getting back to that sense of you know it takes a it takes a village yes, to, yeah. to raise a child rather than it being sort of very atomistic and, and sort of separated. So I think that you know those would be some ways I, I think sort of concrete ways that we could look at. Um, yeah, trying to address this this epidemic of of loneliness of of you know young men feeling like they're lacking lacking purpose. I think lastly, you know, better digital literacy as well is is I think something that's that's really important. 
you know, educating and, and teaching and having conversations with, with young men about social media influencers, um, particularly those that are on the periphery or, at, you know, centrally in, you know, male supremacism um, spaces, for example. How does masculinity become weaponized as a tool to kind of seduce you and recruit you to these kinds of ideologies um what kinds of you know how do they talk about gender relations what kinds of words do they they use in these spaces i think digital literacy is is really important right across the spectrum but i think because language is is one of the key ways through which people are motivated to engage with this content that a critical understanding of language then is maybe one corrective or one kind of tool in the armory of potentially resisting yeah. some of these um, discourses. So I think there's I think there's lots of things that that we could we can do. But again, you know, part of this I think comes down to political will. In yeah. a lot of ways, we are seeing you know the effects of these kinds of male supremacist ideologies you know, play out in in society, on the streets, in the playgrounds, in the classrooms, in homes. Um, and the worry is that if nothing is done, those me- those young boys grow up into men. What kinds of attitudes are they going to have towards women, towards partners, towards relationships, towards houseworking, caregiving and child rearing and, you know, all of those elements as, as well. Do we want to have... Uh, a society where the majority of, of care is, you know, given over to, to women and, and, you know, we're already there anyway, it, it would just get worse. Um, so I think, you know, we need to be looking long term, what are the implications and ramifications if we do nothing and we sit on our hands and let some of these kinds of discourses run unchecked and give more mainstream treatment to, um, you know, really unsavory, you know, social media personalities. Um I, I think what's good is that there are charities out there um, and organisations like Beyond Equality, for example, um, who are trying, you know, to do really, you know, who are doing really, really important work in trying to kind of hold back the tide on giving young men healthier and more positive kind of role models and conceptualizations of, of what it is to be a man. So I think if, you know, those kinds of um, organizations need support, they need funding, they need to grow their their networks and the schools that they engage with and the teachers who are going through CPD courses mm-hmm. about men and masculinity and so on. So the more, you know, so there is there is resistance to some of this kind of stuff. And the fact that there's people like myself and, and, and other colleagues and academics out there who are going you know, well no this is not the direction of travel that we want that's a good thing right because otherwise you know i think if if we weren't calling this out if we weren't speaking out against it then it means that you know there is no resistance in, in some senses and actually then the what's what's normal uh, you know that's what's normal and we're not going to talk about it i, I don't think we're quite there yeah, and I and I hope that you know over the course of the next five ten years we'll see the fruits of you know the labour of, of by organisations like Beyond Equality and and so on. Mm-hmm. I think it, it all makes sense to me, like the, the suggestions that you're putting forward, and I think it all comes down to that community piece and that role model piece. Yeah. I think you know if you've got that strong role model, or well, not just one, if you've got more than one, and you know, things pop up on social media, you're just more likely to go, ah, oh, that guy is just talking nonsense. Like, because you've had, yeah. you've been brought up by that man that's been showing you how we should be behaving and how we should be talking, how we should be treating people, um, yeah. men or yeah. women. And it's just, it's just yeah. so interesting. I think back to when I was growing up, I, my brother-in-law, my sister married, I can't remember what year, but, but she, she got together with him for when she was 17. I think I was 14, 15. And so he was around from then. And like, you know, they're still together mm. now. And he was an, an active, a calm, a compassionate, a just kind, would just like would just do anything for you and and when I got to 18 19 and I was you know have the usual troubles that you know a young man would go through he he would always be there and even things like yeah my car broke down in the middle of the night or something or I get stranded somewhere and like that guy was always there my brother-in-law shout out to Martin yeah absolutely And, (laughs) and and I think you really need those kinds of um figures in your life yeah. right you need that that those people to to look up to to emulate and to um 
you know, model your model good behavior behaviors for you. So I think it's it's so important. You know, so you know if we're if we're sharing stories about um, you know important figures in our in our lives, then you know my dad would be you know one of those one of those people. And, and a lot of what you said about your brother-in-law would would apply to my dad as well. You know, calm, unflappable. You know, would go out his way to to help you. You know, make sure you feel supported. But I've had other men in my life as as well, other um, role models in my life who I've looked up to. So I was in the um, air cadets, uh, the air training corps um, from 13 through to um, 15. And there was one of the sort of civilian leaders, a guy called Bert Lucas, um, who who was just brilliant. Yeah. And he was, you know, again, really calm, unflappable, but, but just really um, forthright and honest and humble as well. And, and those... You know those the times that I that I spent with him, whether that was you know while we were you know doing or marching up and down, and you know whether we were um, you know helping out in the local community or whatever. Those those kinds of lessons that I got from, him, and it was never you know now I'm going to teach you something really important. It was <laughs> never as overt as that, right? It was always really organic. I think you know those kinds of moments in my life really really stuck with me, and and I think they definitely shaped me into the the man that I am today. Mm. And I'm not saying you know for men it always has to be male role models absolutely Mm -hmm. you know i think they're they're obviously women you know are role models as as well i think back you know uh, my mom is absolutely giving me the the sense of discipline and um sort of confidence to you know do my best and and that's something that you know that i'm i'll be forever uh grateful for for so I, I think you need those kinds of role models, whether they're men or whether they're women. Um, but that sense of community, like you say, I think that's so important. There needs to be that community around about you to to give you the tools to you know make it. Yeah. Um, and I think when you lose that kind of communal cohesion, when you lose that that community, that's where other kinds of influences can come in and and take over and and I think ultimately do damage. Um, as, as well yeah that's it and i do think you know social media and just the the general way that our world is set up now just of constant distraction mm. constant quick win constant gratif- you know quick gratification it's it's all that it's all linked isn't it that we're just as you said we're we're hiding on our bedrooms we're, we're not getting out there we're not playing we're not meeting the the older brother of our friend down at the football pitch and playing with them and seeing what you know how how they handle things and that being the positive role model it just it seems like yeah. this is what it, it's all about and it, yeah. it, so that charity that you mentioned called beyond equality that that was really interesting i'll put like a link to the show notes perhaps to, to them and it's yeah. good to know that yeah. you know those kind of organizations are out there and i'd like to think that schools are going to start doing their part as well and yeah, we need more. We need, you know, the, the community leaders, don't we? Like, I remember going to Beavers and Scouts when I was little, that that kind of stuff. So yeah. I'm not sure it's yeah, still yeah. happening, but, oh, man, maybe we can maybe we can make it happen and have those, <laughs> those role models, those healthy, healthy masculinity role models. And that brings me on yeah. to, to talk about, I guess, a slightly... Uh, a lighter aspect of some of your your research and some of what that would be that would be nice. It's been, <laughs> exactly. it's been a heavy conversation so far. It's pretty heavy, hasn't it? But because you have, um, you've looked into a sitcom that I got into uh, just before the summer. I remember, you know, uh, people listening might know that I I listened, I, I watched the US Office. Just you know, I'll, I'll watch series one to series nine. And then once I finish, I'll just start again and I'll just watch it over. And right, over. okay. It's kind of like what Friends yeah. was me to was to me when I was a teenager. The US office has now yeah. taken its place. But I did think, right, come on, I need to branch out a bit here. I need to watch something else. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine came up and I thought, all right, I'll give that a go. Um, and so I've, I've gone through that on Netflix, watched all of those episodes. And, and I did really like it. You know, definitely some moments where I was, I was laughing out loud. And... It's yeah, a sitcom yeah. that you've looked at closely, haven't you? And I want to hear more yeah. about that. Yeah, so so when I was starting to write the book, I kind of knew that I wanted to look at different media outputs. And I was thinking, well, I, I could do some stuff on newspapers. I did you know, a chapter on The Guardian and The Scotsman, the broadsheet newspaper in, in Scotland. I knew that I wanted to do the stuff in the Manosphere. And uh, I knew I wanted to do some stuff on, on a fatherhood forum. 
And I thought, there's a big gap here. There's, you know, TV shows. What could I do? So I had some conversations with some colleagues and one of them suggested um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I had watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine before and enjoyed it and laughed at it and quoted it with friends <laughs> and all the rest of it. Um, and so I started thinking, oh, actually, yeah, that's that's a that's a good idea. So I, sp- I spent a bit of time sort of watching it and and looking at the fandom commentary and the sort of journalist sort of news reporting about the about the show, and realised actually that this was a, a really fascinating space about men and masculinity, particularly because it subverts a lot of the sort of old tropes of sort of police procedural shows like NCIS or, or movies like Bad Boys and stuff like that where the, the male police officer characters are always, they're really strong and tough and take no nonsense and they're stoic and they're quick-witted and, you know, all the rest of it. And what was interesting with Brooklyn Nine-Nine was it didn't use any of that. If it did use that, it, it poked fun at it or it subverted or it sort of played around with it. Um, And yeah, I I think it helped that it's a, it's a really good show. It's eminently quotable and it's funny um, as, as well. So sorry, two six. Um, Yeah. So there's, so there's really um, a lot of linguistic data that goes on there as well. You know, the, 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 um, the script is, you know, it's available online, um, for example, and so you can pull that off um, and start analysing that really, really closely. So, so it was just a perfect kind of space, I think, to, to look at the language side of, of things, look at the masculinity side of things, and then the media side of, of things as well. So it was probably the chapter of the book that I most enjoyed um, writing because I could, you know, have a chuckle as I was watching it and, and as I was writing, you know, certain sections of the, of the chapter up. So that was, so that was really good. But yeah, this, this idea of sort of tough masculinity isn't actually the really important fat element of the, of the show. It's actually more about sort of positive masculinity and emotional connection and closeness between men, um, and, and vulnerability as well. But then, some elements of of the show do rely on that sort of more hegemonic um, ideas about masculine, more sort of traditional ideas of masculinity. So it's that kind of tension that's explored in the show that makes it makes it funny, and from an academic point of view, makes it interesting to to analyse as as well. So yeah, it was it was a really fun chapter to to write, and and I got a lot out of it. Um, and it's really good to be able to, you know, academic conferences and, you know, present on Brooklyn Nine-Nine yeah. and, you know, show off uh, funny funny clips of the of the show as well. So, so yeah, um, I'm glad that you liked the show, though, because every, not all, not everyone in the UK has seen it as, as well. And so sometimes I'll meet someone and they'll be like, oh, so what do you do? I, I, I write about positive masculinities and, uh, and, and so on. And oh, yeah, do you know Brooklyn Nine-Nine? No, I've never, I've never seen it. And so, yeah, you're like... Uh, okay, so now I've got to explain the show, but it, it's pretty, it's pretty popular um, on the on the whole. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny. Us primary school teachers, we kind of get some stick about how we we don't do any work, and you know, it's just an easy life. But you're just sat there watching Brooklyn Nine Nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I've definitely got it easier compared to what primary school uh, teachers do. I definitely wouldn't want oh, to no. switch places uh, with with teachers, to be honest with you. But yeah, there's there's something to be said about um, having the flexibility as an academic to kind of pursue yeah. what you're interested in and pursue what you think is is going to be valuable. And you you've got a lot of independence. I think uh, I think to sort of shape your research agenda and sort of decide what project it is that you're going to um, take on and what you're going to invest your your time and your efforts in. And so if you can make, if you can use that to your benefit and, you know, spend time and analysing, you know, TV shows, um, for example, why then, not? you know, why, why, why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so is there like one, one or one example maybe of, of that? Like what, I don't know. Can you can you picture a scene, or is it just more like a character that you'd say like this? This is this is a great example of positive masculinity, or, or something around that. Yeah. So uh, in the chapter, I look at the relationship between the two main characters, um, Boyle and Peralta, who are the the sort of the two main leads. 
and they've been sort of described as having a bit of a, a bromance <laughs> relationship. They're sort of very, very close to one another and, and sort of engaging uh behaviors that are not sort of stereotypically masculine even though Perotla you know wants to be the sort of alpha male of the precinct he wants to be the sort of John McLean he talks about from from Die Hard he wants to be the the rogue cop that you know is always there to um save the day uh kind of thing so I look at um their relationship and there's a really good scene where they go to the jail um to interview someone and they figure out the the hunch that Boyle had about the cases is right. And so Boyle says, you know, we're we're gonna sing this song. And Perala is like, we're we're absolutely not gonna sing this song together. And then he changes his mind and they have this really lovely moment where they have like choreographed singing and dancing with one another to um the Black Eyed Peas My Humps song. And so this this moment in this in this prison, right? This moment in the prison where they're like finger mat, you know, they're fin- pointing fingers at one another. They're doing the proper dance, and they're and they're you know singing at the same time. And it's this really lovely moment of of connection, of of closeness, of the mirroring one another as well. So it gets to the end of that, and then they're you know in this uber you know macho space of of a of a prison, uh, you know, they're meant to be tough police officers and they're doing this kind of uh, performance piece. And then they look at one another as they stop singing and they're like, yeah, we really should leave. We need to get out of here. And it's that moment where they realise that they've sort of contravened expectations of like heteronormativity and, and sort of masculine practice that they're they're too close now and so they kind of need to step back in and pretend to you know be tough and and so so that that that's one moment where you get this really progressive kind of sense of of masculinity that that plays out but then the humor comes from them going Oh wait a minute! No, no, we can't do that. We, we've got to be tough. We, you know, we're, we're we're too close now. So that to me was was interesting. There's lots of moments in the show that are like that, where you've got this really progressive kind of masculinity on display that's then almost undercut by the the sort of cultural script that surrounds masculinity that they're not adhering to. That and that's where they get that's where they get the humor. So that's that's one example of of Boyle and Perotta. And then I look at um, Terry Cruz's uh, character, yeah. um, Sergeant Terry Jeffords, um, and and he's really interesting because he he uh, sort of embodies a lot of these tropes of sort of hyper male physicality. You know, he's he's muscle bound, he's tough, he's strong. Um, but the humour of his character comes along because he's really emotional. He's in touch with his feelings. He's the sort of dad of the 99 precinct. Um, but superficially, to look at him, you think that he's going to be this, you know, hulking great brute that's, you know, just muscles and weightlifting and, you know, uh, this kind of hyper-masculine uh, persona. And, and he's not like that at all. So I look at... Um, instances of his talk as well where he displays you know really um poignant emotional vulnerability when he's talking about his family or he's talking about his kids or he's talking about um his anxiety and and you know and and the workplace and the pressures of being a police officer and, and what that might mean if he gets shot um for example what does that mean he, you know his kids lose their their father so there's this sort of disjunct i i think between this sort of superficially this hyper-masculine kind of muscle-bound character, but actually um, a really emotionally sensitive and emotionally vulnerable personality as as well. So I think, again, the humour kind of comes through through that, but it also shows that men can be emotional, they can be vulnerable, they can be in touch with their feelings. And I think that, that plays out across the entirety of the show um, between Boyle and Peralta, between Jeffords, between... Um, uh, Hoyle, the the um, the chief of the of of the precinct, um, 
are, they're all very much in touch with their feelings. And I, I think you look at other sort of police TV shows, that's not always the, the case, right? Is this, you know, sort of very stoic, very emotionally closed down, very tough kind of representation of masculinity that you see. So, so yes, I think for all of those reasons, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and, and, you know, the actors have talked about this, uh, about uh, the sort of positive representation of masculinity that the, the, the characters um, embody, the fandom commentary, also recognises and talks about that as well. Um, so I think that that's really nice that what the show kind of sets out to do is actually received by the by the audience and by the fans and by the viewers as well. And so there's a sort of an alignment. You sometimes get these shows that say that they're going to do one thing and then it, it falls flat yeah. and the audience goes, no, that's no, what you're doing. That's that's not how it is. And, and I think what's really nice about the fandom round about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is they recognise actually the positive masculinity representations that are that are being presented in the show and so i think that that's that's really nice so so yeah um like i say it was it was one of the the more interesting and, and fun chat and more light-hearted chapters as as well compared to some of the stuff that i was doing in a sort of alt-right um radicalization and, and manosphere stuff so i think you need to have a bit of a corrective um in these things a bit of balance yeah we appreciate that yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> no but it's great it's it's good you know you can't you need to see it don't you you just need to see how these conversations play out and how mm. as men as you said we we can talk about if we're worried if we're anxious and we can we can celebrate each other as well like we can be proud of each other's yeah. achievements instead of just like it being this competitive like oh if that guy's winning then that means that like i'm like lacking in something and that's what we need to do. And it feels like, you know, I guess if we're yeah. starting to close off our conversation, like we've talked about community, we've talked about positive role models. And I think it comes, it also comes down to us, doesn't it? It comes down to us being a model. Like I've, I've shared some thoughts a, a couple of times saying that, you know, I feel like it's my responsibility almost to be vulnerable with my friends, because if I'm vulnerable with my friends, mm -hmm. they're more likely to be vulnerable with me. And so, if, yeah. if they feel like they can have a conversation with me about something that's worrying them, then then that is where that is where we make real progress. And I'm so lucky, you know. I think about this so much at the moment, like the the pe the men that I've got around me in terms of the the models that they've provided for me. My brother, as I said, my brother-in-law, um, a group of friends, and I think about in terms of like fatherhood, like they're they're all dads, and they the. Um, the example that they set as fathers is just incredible. You know, I don't have any mm. kids myself, yeah. but I think when I do, I'm just going to be the luckiest guy in the world because these guys have yeah. shown me how it's done. They're so like, attentive to their children. They're so sensitive and they are mm. just caring and they're so warm with them. But of course they, they show the other yeah. side of themselves as well, you know, being a disciplinarian and showing where the boundaries are and, and providing for yeah. them and, and wanting to, to, do well for themselves so that then they can provide for their family. It's just incredible. Yeah, and so I yeah. do think it, it kind of, it comes down to us. And if we can be the person that, you know, from this or from whatever is then mm. like modeling those conversations, it's just, yeah, that's what we want, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we, so what you're just talking about there ties in with what well, my next set of research plans are, which mm. is to look at language and, and fatherhood ah, okay. um, more more closely and to look at um, how father support groups do actually support one another. Uh, and so how do they deal with difficult conversations? You know, being a dad isn't isn't easy. It's a massive transition to a new a new life stage. Um, and there's not that much guidance out there. There's not much support on how to do it properly. And so some dads um, find it really difficult. We find it, you know, struggle with depression, with anxiety, um, with PTSD and, and so on. So what I'm interested in is is how is that kind of support constructed in a in a group setting, you know, so you know, that could be a friendship um, group that you've just talked about or, you know, something more formal with, you know, a facilitator that's, you know, sort of leading leading the conversation. Um, but I'm really interested in how those kinds of spaces can act as, as a support mm. space, as a sort of mentoring space, as a guidance space, uh, as a way of, of men sort of reflecting on their own behaviours and their own practice as dads um, as well. So so that's something I'm sort of at the, at the start of thinking about and, and hopefully over the course of the next couple of years I'll, I'll sort of be able to, yeah, 
have a better understanding of, of exactly what's what's going on in, in those kinds of uh, groups. So, yeah. so yeah, it's good to hear that you sort of um, mentioned that because I think it's definitely something that academics are starting to become yeah. more interested in. And I think fatherhood does do a lot, you know, has a lot of uh, a massive impact on men's identity um, and a men's sense of self as well. All of a sudden, it's not just about about you, it's about your kids, it's about the family unit. And what does that mean? And, and it is the, you know, the, the good bits of, of, you know, what you mentioned there, but it is also about dealing with the difficulties of, you know, probably one of the biggest life-changing things that that you'll do um and you're responsible for you know raising this little person to become a a, a fully fledged adult and it's and it's a massive um privilege but it's also such a huge challenge um full of all sorts of pitfalls so so yes i'm really interested in how you know what job does language do in those kinds of spaces how do dads think about fatherhood and about masculinity and about their identities as as men so maybe you can get me on the podcast in a couple of years time and i'll give you some insights on that i'd absolutely (laughs) love that because i think that is such such important work so it's it's really great to hear that that's what's coming up next and it's being spoken about and, and research it's brilliant brilliant cool right i think we can like start to to wrap this one up um i do ask kind of three quick fire questions to every guest if you're up for it uh yeah sure we can (laughs) we can give a we can give it a bash i don't know if i'm any good at quick fire (laughs) but we'll see first one is uh what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child oh man one lesson that I wish I've been thinking about this question all week, and and I don't I I don't know um, if if there is you know it sounds really daft, but I got so much from my mom and dad when I was when I was growing up, and and I think that the person I am today is is ultimately down to down to them and the experiences that I had growing up, and they really um, tried their best to give me um structure discipline and love and guidance um so so yeah if if there's one lesson maybe um to be more willing to explore the world around about me um i i I think i was always quite nervous (laughs) as a as a kid um and it's taken me a long time as a as a teenager and as an adult to sort of put myself out there um, and, and explore and I, and I look at my, my, my two girls and they're unburdened by expectation they're unburdened by societal pressure they, they just go out and, and do stuff even if they think that they're going to be rubbish at it even if they think that they're going to be no good at it they'll, they'll go out and they'll do it and they'll fail and they'll try again um, so I think that's probably you know something that I would have liked to have maybe learned as a kid that it's, it's to go out and explore and that it's okay to fail Mm. next one is there a habit that maybe you've introduced to your life that you think has made a difference a small little habit that you perhaps do daily or weekly that you think other people could benefit from oh it's so cliche isn't it but i think exercising like just getting out there moving um whether that's running or cycling or even just getting a walk or going to the gym or swimming or or whatever um so i did that lots when i was you know younger um and then as you get older no sort of life catches up and it becomes more difficult to find time for it and so that kind of dips in the and the weight goes on and you know your health um maybe isn't as great as it could be so yeah i i, I think that that's i'm sort of getting back into my cycling and and that's been a really good sort of thing for me to to do so so yeah um exercising and and keeping that going regularly i think that would but that's so cliche everyone probably says yeah do more exercise um but that's been one thing that's that's definitely sort of made made a difference in my life and finally if you could give everyone in the world one book which book would you give them um so i've got to pick a a scottish author i think being being scottish um and i would probably pick the bridge by ian banks Mm -hmm. um which is just a brilliant sort of exploration of a man trying to find himself in this kind of dream world um and it's 
about intrigue and it's about a sort of mystery as you unravel who this person is and it's just got this you know brilliant um story that goes along with it and the characters are really funny and interesting and bits of it are written in scots as well so there's this glaswegian um sort of barbarian um that that some of the chapters follows who speaks in a Glaswegian accent um and it's just it's really funny and it's really enjoyable so yeah that would be that would be my book nice one right people that want Thank to <laughs> follow your work um where can they connect with you and, and also your book where can people get a copy of your book yeah, so my book, um, Language and Mediated Masculinities, is available from all good bookshops. So you can buy it on um, on Amazon, on Oxford University Press website, um, and so on. So yeah, that's um, that's been out now for for a little while. Um, so yeah, you can buy that in uh, yeah, a whole bunch of places online. Um, social media, I'm on Twitter, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, so people can um, follow me on uh, on there. Search for robert lawson and and the links will um pop up and i've got my website on uh, birmingham city university's uh website as well so folk can follow me on there really bad at self-promotion that's the one thing i need to do a course on i think and how to confidently self-promote um but but there we go you can buy my book online and follow me on twitter Love it. Love it. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to <laughs> next time and getting you back on the show in a couple of years, perhaps after, after the research is done. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your, for your time. Um, really appreciate it, Rob. Cheers. Nope. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Rob insightful. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it interesting. And as always, you can support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. I'd really appreciate it if you did that. Follow the show, give us a rating as well. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Right, I'll be bringing you another episode soon. 